Welcome to the Together PDX podcast. You're listening to our Gospel Gathering series, where we will be replaying valuable content from past events where local Portland leaders gathered to hear from authors, theologians, and scholars. We'd like to note that the views shared by our guests don't necessarily reflect those of the entire Together PDX team. We pray today's content enriches your day and spirit. Hey everyone, I'm Elise and welcome to part two of NT Wright's April 2020 talk on new creation reality. We're jumping right into the second part of this talk, followed by some Q&A. We do apologize again in advance for some minor sound issues that occurred during the original Zoom. Here's NT Wright. I want to talk about Romans 8. Now, Romans 8 is is the most amazing chapter, as, as many of you will know, and I'm sure preachers among you um, you, you, you rub your hands in glee when you see it coming up as, as, a, as a passage to preach on. But there is so much in it, which actually I think we often miss out. We often skate by it because we, we, love, we have our favorite bits. And I have had the joy over the years of having bright students who have nudged me and said, hey, Professor Wright, you're missing this bit, or you haven't noticed this, or you haven't quite figured out that. It's one of those passages that, like Romans as a, as a letter in, as a whole, and goes on and on and on. And I've been studying it all my life, and uh, I keep on learning more from it. But I want to start with uh, some of the things I was mentioning before about the questions that people have been asking. And I've been getting emails from folk and, and being asked on radio shows and so on. Um, ju- just what is going on? Is this present pandemic uh, a great sign that God is calling the world to repent? Or is it even the sign that if we calculate three and a half years from now, um, Jesus is going to come back or there'll be a rapture or something like that? The answer is no, that's not the right way of approaching it. Jesus says there will be no signs. There will be signs before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, plenty of those, but before the final coming, um, it'll be a time like the days of Noah. People will be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. In other words, life going on as normal. So, of course, there are great tragedies and great extraordinary disasters that happen. And we shouldn't uh, rush to interpret those in terms of some chronological scheme, some eschatological framework or whatever. In fact, trying to do that is often a way of ignoring the real challenge, which, as I said before, has an element of lament as well as an element of prayer and of penitence about it. And and actually, when people say to me, oh, surely this is a a call to repent, and haven't you read Daniel chapter 9 about uh, repentance and so on? Yes, I have. But actually, we are called to repent the whole time. Um, And supposing more people had repented over the last 10 years, supposing there had been a great national repentance in China, does that necessarily mean that the, um, uh, the, the, the coronavirus wouldn't have started? Just what are we saying when we're saying that sort of thing? It's rather like the old rabbinic view, which some of the rabbis of roughly Jesus' time seem to have held, that uh, if all Israel kept the law for one solitary day, then the Messiah would come. And that was a kind of a fantasy world, because actually, when the Messiah came, people were looking the other way. Some people were keeping the law as best they could. Others were ignoring it. And the Messiah sneaked in as a baby in Bethlehem and without anyone much realizing about it. And so God doesn't keep to timetables like that. And in any case, the danger then is that we say, ah, this is a sign that we should repent. And then we tell off 
people in our world for all the things that we think they should repent of. And quite often there are people in other parts of the world who would look at us in the West and say, if anyone needs to repent, it's you lot. And not least because your habit of continually flying to and fro is the thing that has spread this disease like wildfire. So that guess where the epicenter is now? It's in Europe and North America, the places where people are always traveling so much and I've done it myself. And maybe that's one of the things we ought to be aware of. So it's very difficult just to say, this is a sign that you should repent, or even that we should repent. We should always repent. And the early church, interestingly, never looked at it like that. Whenever there was a plague or a famine in the early church, take that moment in Acts chapter 11, when Agabus stands up in the church in Antioch and says, there's going to be a famine. He was a prophet and God had given him a vision. There was going to be a famine right through that part of the world. And the church in Antioch didn't at once say, oh, what is God trying to tell us about this? Or, oh, dear, this is a sign that we should repent. They asked two questions. Who is going to be in need at this point and what can we do to help? And those are deeply practical, deeply kingdom orienting questions. Instead of trying to theorize about what God is doing, they knew because they were people filled with God's spirit that what God wants to do is not fill your heads with the right solution so that you don't have to worry about it anymore, but actually getting your hands dirty with the praxis of where is help going to be needed and how is that going to work out. And in particular, I was discussing with a friend in Houston, Texas, actually, the other day on email about this. And she said to me, after all, the book of Job, the whole point of the book of Job is that at no point does Job get to know uh, what it was all about. We know because we've read the first two chapters, but Job didn't have the luxury of seeing those two chapters. And it's Job's comforters who instantly spring into action and say, oh, Job, it's because your children sinned or it's because you sinned. There must be some sin somewhere, some unconfessed sin. So, Job, really, it's down to you. And at the end of the book, those guys are simply blown away. The great revelation of God in all his majesty. They have nothing left to say. And we don't have too much to say either, because part of the point of the book of Job is that it remains a mystery. There isn't a solution of the sort that we want. It's uh, an invitation to trust the God who ultimately we can't fully understand. Even when we look at Jesus on the cross, that is a mystery, a deep and dark mystery. Of course, there's a lot we can say about it. So then the question is, Okay, the Old Testament does have many passages which are actually calls to repentance. The prophets have times when Israel is in serious trouble and the prophets say, right, you need to repent and turn back to the Lord. The book of Joel famously does this. Um, but does the New Testament go that way? It doesn't quite. And in Romans 8, where there's a lot of suffering as well as a lot of glory, Paul doesn't say that faced with this suffering, oh, that's a call for us to repent when he says we are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered, quoting Psalm 44. He doesn't say, therefore, this is a sign that we as a church have got it all hor horribly wrong. It just means that we are in this world where there is an ongoing struggle between good and evil. Because we know Jesus, we know that in his resurrection, he has won the victory over evil. But because we are equipped with the spirit, that doesn't enable us to sail through the world without feeling the pain of evil. 
it rather equips us to be people of prayer at the place where the world is in pain. And that's what I'm going to be coming back to. And actually, there's another parallel as well as Acts 11, where they know that there's a famine coming up. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that this is a time of present distress. And various scholars have pointed out that when Paul was writing 1 Corinthians, roughly 54, 55, that sort of time in the AD uh, scheme, that there was a great famine over much of the world then. And when Paul says this is a time of real distress, so it's probably not a time for thinking of doing great new projects or getting married or starting a business or whatever it is, better to stay as you are to see this thing through at the moment. They, and so Paul doesn't say, yes, it's a time of distress, so it must mean that you need to repent. That's usually the wrong answer. There may, of course, always be room for repentance because we are all still sinners, but that should be a daily and hourly thing and a weekly thing when we meet for worship, um, not a set sudden thing that happens once every 10 years or so when there's some great crisis. So to Romans 8. Now, the way to understand Romans 8, well, one of the ways to understand Romans 8 is to see this as the climax of Paul's Exodus story. It's an Exodus story because in Romans 6, we have the picture of baptism where the slaves get freed. Hang on. Paul uses baptism as an image of the crossing of the Red Sea in 1 Corinthians 10. He's pulling something together here. We are slaves to sin like Israel was slaves in Egypt. And God brings us through the water and we are set free to be God's people and to serve him. But then what happens in the story of the Exodus is that the people come to Mount Sinai where they get given the law. And the first thing that the law does is it condemns them because they are a stiff necked and hard hearted people. And while Moses is up the mountain getting the law, Aaron is downstairs making the golden calf. It's a terrible and a tragic story. But Romans 7 resonates with that, that the law is God's law. It's holy and just and good. But the more you cling to it, the more the law says you have broken me. What then is to happen? Well, Romans 8 does what then at the end of the book of Exodus, God himself does. But nevertheless, despite it all, God makes the way of forgiveness, the sacrificial system and the coming of God's personal presence to live in the tabernacle right there beside the gate of the camp. And Paul uses temple language in Romans 8 when he talks about the spirit dwelling within you. If you look up the idea of indwelling in the Old Testament, that is regularly about God dwelling in the tabernacle or the temple. So that as he says in First Corinthians, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit and you yourself as the people of God in Christ are the temple of the living God. And so that temple theme then comes through when he says that we are led by the spirit to our inheritance. This, my friends, is the picture of new creation. That the inheritance which we are to receive is not leaving this world and going to heaven. That's a platonic mistake, which so much of the church has suffered from. The inheritance in question, it's obvious in Romans 8, 18 through 27, the inheritance is the entire new creation. When creation itself will be set free from its slavery to decay and corruption in order to share the freedom which comes when God's children are glorified. 
And what does glorification mean there? Well, as one of my students argued in a dissertation some years ago, we tend to think that glorification means going to heaven, means being luminous, shining like an electric light bulb. That's not what glory means here. Paul is tracking with Psalm 8, where the human vocation fulfilled in Jesus, but also to be shared by us, is that though we as humans are made a little lower than the angels, we are to be crowned with glory and honor with all things put in subjection under our feet. Wow, that's an extraordinary promise. And what's that got to do with Romans 8? Well, it's got everything to do with Romans 8, because in Romans 5, where Paul plants the seeds, which then come to full flower and fruit in Romans 8, in Romans 5, he speaks about those who at present share the life of Jesus are in the Messiah and who themselves will share his rule and his reign. So it's not just that we are rescued from sin and from death. We are rescued in order to be people of the kingdom, sharing the rule of the Messiah over his world. And with that, Paul includes Psalm 2, which is the great psalm near the beginning of the Psalter, which takes the promises to Abraham, the promises of a worldwide family and of this particular land, the land of Canaan, and universalizes it. Psalm 2 says that God says to the king, to David and his true successor, who we know is the Messiah, Jesus, that uh, I will make your inheritance the uttermost parts of the earth and your possession will be the ends of the world. In other words, what God said to Abraham about the land was an advance foretaste of God's claim on the whole creation. And the promise to Abraham and his descendants is turned messianically into the promise to all the Messiah's people to inherit the whole of God's creation. What, in its present state of corruption and decay? No, of course not. God's world will be given its exodus. God will do at the last for the whole of creation what he did for Jesus three days after his crucifixion. So that's the picture we have in Romans 8. And we are being led by the Spirit towards that inheritance. And that's why the theme of the ultimate new creation, which we're promised, must play back into the present time, because by the Spirit we are to be ourselves in the present, people of new creation, so that we are given this little bit of creation, namely my own body, my mind, my, my habits, my family, my relationships. This is the little bit of creation which I am tasked with looking after and being in charge of and making sure that it displays the signs of that new creation, which God is making and longs to make. That's what it means to have that inheritance already. But what does this look like in practice? In Romans 8, verses 25, 6, 7, and then on into 8, 9, and 30, but particularly in 27, I think, or 26 and 27, it becomes clear that the form that glorification takes in the moment is prayer and suffering. 
we have not perhaps intuited that deeply enough in the Western Protestant and individual and evangelical ways of going about things. We tended to see Romans 8 as, well, there we are. This is the Christian life and there's glory up ahead. And isn't this marvelous? But we need, as I said before, in relation to John's gospel, we need to pause and stop and think about Romans 26 and 27, particularly about the spirit coming to help us in our weakness. Paul doesn't say, yes, the Spirit will just enable you to sail through all troubles in triumph and to get it all right and to have no problems. No, the Spirit comes to where we are in that place. And where is it that we are? We find ourselves groaning. There is a triple sequence of groaning. I've written about this in many places. It's been one of the themes I've discovered of my ministry and of my Pauline exegesis over many years now. That Paul says the whole creation, verse 22, is groaning together and in travail together. He uses the word you'd use of a woman giving birth to a child. The whole creation is going through labor pains. And where should the church be at a time like this? Should the church be sitting on the sidelines saying, well, of course, the world's in a mess. But thank God he works miracles for us so that we can get away from all that and we can have an untroubled life. No, that's a parody of the notion of Christian discipleship. Of course, God does sometimes do amazing things and rescues people from dire situations. Think of Acts chapter 12, when Peter, who was about to be killed the next day, was woken up by an angel and got out of jail free. Ah, but what happened just before that? At the beginning of Acts 12, James, the brother of John, was killed with the sword. He didn't get out of jail free. I've often thought if I was James and John's mother, I wouldn't like Acts 12 very much because, hey, how come that other person's son got out of jail free and my son got killed? There is always the mystery. The mystery continues and it will go on until God makes all things new finally and God is all in all. But as we live with that mystery, the groaning of the church takes place within at the heart of the groaning of creation. Paul says in verse 23, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit. You might think, oh, good, the first fruits of the spirit. That's wonderful. We're going to have a good time here. No, we groan as we await our adoption as sons and daughters, which is the redemption of our bodies, our present sinful and corruptible bodies are going to be redeemed. We are going to be raised from the dead and we long for that. And if we know our business, we should be praying for that. And as we come to Easter, we should be celebrating in advance that that will be the case for us. But then the real mystery of this whole passage, and I think it's the mystery which is at the heart of the doctrine of the Trinity in verses 26 and 27. The Spirit helps us in our weakness because we don't know what to pray for as we ought. This is the clue. We do not know and we're not supposed to know. There is a prayer of unknowing. There is a prayer which simply collapses into the wordless groan which is trying somehow to say, but there aren't words for it. Lord, it has all gone horribly wrong. It is too awful. I really don't know what to think about this. And then the collapse into silence and to groan. And Paul says at that very moment, the spirit is also groaning within us. We don't know what to pray, but Paul says the spirit intercedes for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. 
And if you have what we call in the trade a high theology of the Holy Spirit, in other words, if you believe that the Spirit is the third member of the Trinity, fully divine, then this means that there is a moment when even God doesn't know what to say. Isn't that extraordinary? I think if we could embrace that or be embraced by that, we would learn a lot at this time. And then Paul says in verse 27, the one who searches the hearts knows the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for God's people according to God's will. Who is the one who searches the hearts? Obviously, God the Father. Paul is here alluding to Psalm 44, uh, verse 21, when he, when the psalmist says, if we had stretched out our hands to some strange God, would not God know it? Because he knows the secrets of our hearts. Paul is tracking with Psalm 44 through this whole psalm. It's a great psalm. And like Psalm 89, it starts off with a celebration that God is our God and he's looking after us. And then it all goes horribly wrong. The psalmist just has to say, where are we? What's happening? And my friends, it's at the point where we say, where are we? What's happening? That we can be most sure that the spirit is praying that same prayer within us. And this is then the vocation of God's church, not to have the easy answers, not to be able to have the one liners which say, oh, well, this is what it's all about. End of question. There's nothing more to worry about. No. This is the vocation of the church to be the people in prayer at the place where the world is in pain. And if that means that we have to go and maybe stand outside the hospital and simply pray there wordlessly, perhaps, or sing a psalm of lament, whatever it is, of course, keeping a safe distance from others, but simply doing that as an act of fidelity. Or maybe cycling by if you're allowed to bicycle past a hospital and simply holding that place in prayer and particularly praying for the doctors and the nurses and especially any who you know. In my country, there are doctors and nurses who are themselves dying of this wretched disease, as there are indeed bus drivers and all sorts of people who just come into contact with folk day by day. The spirit is groaning over this right now. And we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit share that groaning. This is the call for lament. And this is so because the Jesus who came to stand with us and to take the pain and shame of the world upon himself, Jesus himself in Gethsemane said, Abba, Father. And when Paul says in Romans 8.15 that we cry Abba, Father too, that's not simply a chatty, friendly approach to the one we call this familial name, dad or daddy, Abba. The cry of Abba is the cry that comes from the heart that doesn't know what's going on and simply holds on to the fact that even though we can't see, this is God's world. We believe God's spirit is in us. And our task is to be in prayer at the place where the world is in pain. Not then to sit back and analyze. That would be to collude with sin and death. There was a debate a week or two ago because there was an article in First Things complaining about the lockdown and so on and saying that our governments were giving in too readily to a kind of a fear of death. There's a danger here for some theologians, I think. And at this point, my dear C.S. Lewis, whom I, I love and treasure, I think gets it wrong in Screwtape Letters when during the war, 
screw tape the state the old devil says don't worry about how many people are being killed during the war that's not the point i knew they were going to die sometime and the only thing that matters is the state of their heart or mind um, at the point of death in other words are they going to heaven or are they going to hell and i want to say actually no death is more important than that it's not just oh well they were going to die anyway the rabbis used to say that somebody who kills somebody else is a multiple murderer because they not only kill them, they kill all the people who would come from that person, whom that person would be the parent or grandparent of. And I think that's a way of saying that all humans have the vocation to reflect God into the world. Paul says in Romans 8:29, we are made in the image of the Son. And that image bearing this is the task, the vocation to represent God's love into the world. And every time somebody gets killed or dies of this disease, that is another God reflector snuffed out, robbed of their vocation to be a living uh, witness to God's presence, whether or not they know God personally. So the human vocation is then being denied. And of course, after the wars, after the first war, after the second war, after the Vietnam War, um, the awful long-term fallout, the, the, the social and cultural sickness, which comes from multiple deaths, multiple bereavements, widows and orphans, and all the rest of it. John Donne, the old 17th century Anglican poet, was right. Everybody's death diminishes me. And we should grieve over that and groan over it and not simply say, oh, well, we're Christians. We believe in resurrection. So it doesn't matter. But rather, this is the mystery of the Trinity, that God will put all things right, that he has done that already in Jesus Christ. And that by the spirit, he calls us not just to be put right people ourselves, justification, but to be part of his putting right project for the world. And my friends, that is focused on the suffering where we share that pain and that grief and where in our own times of sickness, in our own times of temptation, in our own times of sheer sorrow, where we find that we are sharing and bearing the pain of the world. This is where justification turns into justice, that we are to be the putting right people because by the spirit we share that passion. This is why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. You know, people often say, why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't he send in the tanks and sort out the mess? As I've said again and again, Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount is that God doesn't send in the tanks. He's not that kind of God. We caricature God when we think like that and when we behave like that, by the way. When God wants to sort out the world, he sends in the meek and the mourners and the brokenhearted and the hungry for justice people and the people who themselves are prepared to suffer for righteousness sake. And by the time the bullies and the bad guys have woken up and realized what's going on, the meek and the mourners and the pure in heart and the hungry for justice people and the peacemakers have built schools and hospitals and are looking after the poor and are prepared to give their lives in the service of their fellow human beings, because that is the witness to the generous grace of the creator God poured out for us in Jesus Christ. That is what we are called to at the moment. And it's out of that that the celebration of Romans 8, 31 to 39 comes at the end. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that strikes me uh, as a pastor, particularly, I think, with such a 
there's almost a biblical triumphalism to Christianity in America. And, and in that rationalistic kind of point of view, to not have answers that are concrete, to not have, um, you know, specific answers. What God, what is God doing? How is this hopeful? I think people misunderstand that as almost like a theology of hopelessness. And I don't think that's what Tom was saying, particularly in his Times article. Um, but it's more of a finiteness in our own humanity, a finiteness in our own uh, experience. Tom, are you there? He's coming. But that finiteness uh, that moves us, are you there? Are you there? Yes. Great. Hello, yes. Um, I was just talking about how hard we struggle in the church that that we have kind of this triumphant triumphal whatever word i'm trying to say this rationalistic sort of victoriousness that isn't comfortable with the groaning the suffering and the mystery and that it can almost feel as though um christianity doesn't have any concrete hope for me i i mean i think and I see this in my own country too, but I think particularly in America, there's a kind of an oscillation between an over triumphalism on the one hand, and then people who react against that, perhaps because they have known real tragedy in their own lives. I know one or two theologians who have had real horrible tragedies in their own lives, and they then look at the easy explanations that some people offer, and they think, no, that simply isn't true. That's not how it works. And I, I get that. But uh, this is why the Christian hope is hope and not optimism. It's not just, oh, well, feeling, uh, yeah, it's, it's all going to work out. But hope is anchored in God himself. And what we know of God is what we know in and through Jesus Christ. And what we know in and through Jesus Christ is the resurrection on the third day, that God has always promised new creation. He's accomplished it in Jesus. And we hang on to that. And that does not translate easily into an easygoing, oh, it'll all work out then. Um, and those of us who much prefer to think it'll all work out and prefer not to look at danger and difficulty until it's almost too late, we have to be humbled by that um, in order then to be able to minister to the people for whom it hasn't worked out, the people who never found the right job, the people whose family disintegrated, the people for whom it all went horribly wrong. Um, somehow the church has always been there for people like that. We in the post-enlightenment world have always thought of ourselves as the success stories of the world. That's an enlightenment myth, and shame on us that the church has often picked that up. But of course, the fact that we reject that doesn't mean we don't have hope. It means we can fix our eyes on the real hope and on the ways in which that hope is anticipated by the Holy Spirit, but it's not an easy going, oh, yes, the Spirit will do it. It's always to do with the genuine signs of new creation, of healing, of reconciliation in the present. Yes. Tom, we want to let you finish. Um, and you had a few last minutes there. So you want to just kind of give us your closing thoughts as you were wrapping up your talk? 
Oh, but uh, no, I think I was I was good to go. I, I was just trying to tie the last threads together. So we'll go with it. Go straight into the Q and A. That's fine. Um, yes, yes, again. The language that you're sharing, um, it's it's new language um, that is allowing my own heart um, to be able to rest in a space of uncertainty. Um, I think I grew up in a, in a context where I was trying to really understand um, how to always answer certain questions. Um, but this new language is helping me persevere. Um, but as I, as I reflect on our current situation, uh, in times of distress and times of, of, of pain, people can really be driven by fear and, and anxiety and look for someone to blame. And sadly, throughout history, um, the church has participated in marginalizing people. So when we're, we're looking at Romans 8 and listening to the, the gift of the, the Spirit, um, inviting us all to be children of God, um, how do we um, speak as a, as a theologian and historian? How do we address what we see happening today with the racism that is rising against the Asian American community and what we can learn from the church's past? in order for the church to be bold and to speak against that uh, today. Um, I'm assuming that when you mention racism and that directed against the Asian community, this has to do with the sense um, that this thing started in China and that therefore, just like after 9-11, people were attacking people who looked to atrocity. Um, from the very beginning, Part of the point of the church was to be a family of everybody, of Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female. And the ancient Mediterranean world where Christianity began was a socio-cultural and ethnic melting pot. And there was no such thing as racism in that sense, in terms of color, in terms of skin pigmentation or particular physiognomic characteristics, because there were so many different um, uh, physical types in a church like Antioch, for instance. Obviously, there was a big divide between Jew and Gentile, and that's the thing that Paul says in his very first letter, the letter to the Galatians. Um, that's what has to go. There is no longer Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female. Um, we're just not going to do that anymore. And the early church was known for being this kind of extraordinary social experiment. Sadly, in the last thousand years, but particularly in the last three or four hundred years, we have forgotten that in our eagerness to think that I am going to be saved, I'm going to heaven, then often our churches are me and people who look like me, me and people who sound like me. And the whole point of the gospel, as far as Paul's concerned, is that God has broken down those walls of separation. But this has become a learned habit by churches as well as societies in the Western world. We saw it drastically in South Africa with apartheid. We saw it pretty drastically in the southern United States, of course, in, in the old slave culture. We saw it a great deal in Britain, in various of Britain's colonial expansion systems in the 19th and early 20th century, etc. So we're, we're all guilty. I'm not pointing fingers at anyone here. I'm saying that all of these stem from would-be Christian societies forgetting that one of the primary imperatives in the early church is to say that all those who believe in Jesus, 
whatever their ethnic background, are brothers and sisters, and that that is a new model of humanity which is designed to shine a light out into the world and say, my friends, this is how it should be. So how we get back to that from where we are, there's several stages to go back through, but we should realize that this isn't just a modern problem, it isn't just an American problem, it isn't just a European or Russian problem or whatever, but somehow the church has to give a lead in saying, no, we are a joined up community of all sorts and conditions of people. And that's a huge thing. It's one of the great gospel imperatives of our day. And I and others have been banging on about this for years and often feeling as though we're not getting anywhere. But yeah, so we've got to watch out for that and, and, and nail it when we see it. Professor Wright, thank you so much just for the ways that you've just encouraged us with the word today. And um, one of the things I'm thinking about right now is that around the entire globe, there are going to be no corporate gatherings to celebrate the risen Lord on Sunday. And I don't know, in my lifetime, I know that has never, ever happened before. And as churches, we're very challenged by not being able to gather. And we don't know when that when it will become possible that we can gather again. So I just want to ask, what is your counsel to us as pastors? What I, what I heard you say uh, through the things that you shared was, to really um, not just give simple answers, not just try to proclaim what we think God is doing, but really to come alongside us in walking with them through through grief and shepherding them. But what would your advice be to us during this time that we're trying to lead in and keep our people focused on Christ during this season? I have been wrestling with this one because I live in the middle of Oxford and there are more churches and chapels in a square mile around me here than probably any other square mile in the rest of in the rest of Britain. And, and they're all locked. They're all shut. And, and that's for me, that is like a kind of exile. It's like Psalm 137. It's how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? These buildings are, are the places where we have gone traditionally for centuries uh, to praise God and to celebrate together and to weep together. And if we can't do that, who are we? And I think it may be, and again, I'm not trying to put words into God's mouth, as it were. It may be that somehow we have to think about and pray our way into the, the notion of exile again, of being in Babylon um, that we're not in our regular space. And that means that we're not with our regular brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, again, thank God for the internet. Thank God for telephones. Thank God that modern means of communication do enable us to get together somehow. Which I was wishing, I said to somebody just today, um, I would love to see the Bishop of Oxford striding down the main streets of Oxford on Sunday morning, shouting, Hallelujah, Christ is risen. There mightn't be anybody about because they're all um, locked up at home, but they might hear him. They might hear and um, look out of the window and say, what's going on? And we, we, it, why can't we be a bit creative to find ways within the government's restrictions Perhaps tell the local police force you're going to do it first, um, but actually to have some sort of witness, some sort of procession. Normally, we would do Good Friday processions where somebody would carry a cross and people would follow on and they would read the readings of Jesus' passion and they would sing some hymns and so on. Maybe you could get 10 people from a church uh, at sort of five paces apart to keep a safe distance. But maybe there are creative ways in which that might be allowed. But as well as that, I think it behoves all of us, even if we have to stay firmly at home, to 
we can use Zoom as we're doing today. Um, and hopefully it doesn't break down like it's threatening to do here. Um, there have to be creative ways. Um, I, I was telling the story of Terry Waite, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury's emissary when the Middle East was having one of its terrible turbulent times. 30 years ago or so, he was kept in solitary confinement for some years. It was a terrible time. And during that time, he had whole chunks of the Anglican prayer book and of the Bible in his head and his heart. And day by day, he would celebrate his own. If they're sick, for instance, they have to stay in their cell. They know that their brothers and sisters are praying the liturgy at a certain time, and they will join in with that. And there's that sense of of disjointed solidarity. And maybe that's part of what being in exile has to look like. Um, Tom, I'm wondering if you could speak to the difference between empire and shalom. You mean as in God's empire, as in the kingdom of God? No, I guess I'm talking about the empires of today as We're seeing them all shut down in some ways versus the kingdom and the shalom of God and the church's place in there. Says, are you a king? And Jesus says, you say I'm a king. And he says, this is why I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. And Pilate says, what is truth? And what Jesus, I think, is doing there is to say that the kingdom of God is about the truth of the new creation. And Pilate only knows the truth of the old creation. And so Jesus says, if I were, if my kingdom was from this world, my servants would fight to stop me being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But as it is, my kingdom comes from somewhere else. Now, footnote, don't misunderstand that. When he says my kingdom is not from this world, he's not saying that it it isn't of this world at all. That's the old translation is wrong. Um, In other words, my kingdom is purely in heaven and not on earth. No, the kingdom is from somewhere else, but it is for this world. And the difference is that the kingdoms of this world make their way by brute force. And Jesus kingdom has a different dynamic entirely and the whole of john's gospel is expounding that and that's why i said before about to do is advancing by the way it's one of the lies of the modern western world to say that christianity was part of the problem not part of the solution in other words that that oh yeah all that religion stuff that's just got us into a lot of trouble we've got to forget that um, Stephen Pinker has argued that in, in some of his books, I think, and so, so have many others. And, and the answer is no, actually, Christianity at its best has transformed the world so that many of the things we take for granted in the modern Western world, like um, looking after one another in, in a community, like having a community that, that believes in education and medicine and care for the poor and so on, all of this flows out of the gospel. The ancient Roman and Greek world didn't do that stuff at all. What's happened is that the ancient Jewish imperative of looking after the members of the wider family has become the, the then the Christian imperative of doing that as far as you can for everybody. Paul says in Galatians, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those of the household of faith. And that doing good to all is the kingdom of God thing, whereas the kingdom of 
Jesus, and the Jesus instead says, actually, here is new beyond death, and Caesar has no response to that. One thing that has I've just personally wanted to know is just what is God doing in your life during this time of being quarantined and and being out of the northern northern normal rhythm? What is what is God's spirit doing in you? That was supposed to be in by Easter, which is just three days away. I told the publishers today that it's probably going to be the next week, um, and they're happy with that. Um, but that has been a, a spiritual exercise as well as an academic exercise. It's a matter of, of prayer and discernment as to how I say what I believe has to be said and putting it all together. Simultaneously with that, there are huge issues around family health and so on. Uh, one of my daughters, I, I'm happy to share this, one of my daughters uh, suffers from bad health anyway, but she is now showing some of the symptoms of coronavirus. And it's really uh, eating away at my heart and my wife's heart that we can't go and be with her and help look after her because we're not allowed to. So if people out there would like to pray for my dear daughter, Rosamond, I'm sure that would be m mighty appreciated. And my other daughter has had difficulties as well of, of, of other sorts. So um, as a family, we have two sons as well, and we talk on the phone to the whole family quite a lot. But there are, there are, these are big questions which you carry with you the whole time. So I'm trying to be an academic, a pastor, a father, a grandfather. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, the, the basic necessities of life. Am I allowed to go out to the store anymore or am I in danger of bringing the coronavirus back into the home, infecting my wife as well as myself? Um, th these are these are much harder questions than one would have thought possible. And so the only way through is the way that I know, which is to spend solid time in prayer and in Bible study morning by morning by morning, which is how I normally do that. Um, and hold the rest of the day within that embrace. And uh, that feels very real right now, as I'm sure it does for all of you listening. Yes, well, Tom, we will definitely be praying. And but let's take a minute and pray for her right now, uh, as all of us on this uh, call can do. Uh, Father God, we want to pray for Rosamond right now and ask that you would... Father, protect her, that you would put a hedge of protection around her. We pray that even these signs and symptoms that she's possibly having, God, we pray that those would go away, that you would powerfully intervene and heal her, even as we speak and we gather to pray, God, that we ask that she would um, be completely healed and that if there are signs and symptoms, they wouldn't be that of COVID-19. God, we thank you so much for Tom and for his work and all that he's doing in this moment and the different roles that he plays. Father, we are so grateful for him. Would you sustain him? Would you give him strength and clarity and discernment as he helps so many uh, like us, but much more so as he helps his family? We pray in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Thank you very much. Tom, thank you so much for yes. all that you have done and shared with us today. It has been a true blessing. Wow, so good. Thanks so much for listening, you guys. We have plenty more great gospel gathering content where that came from. So keep listening to the Together PDX podcast. 
If you want to see the video version of this talk and all the others we have, make sure to check out togetherpdx.org slash podcast. And check out our events page for the next in-person gospel gathering in the Portland metro area. Have a great week.